You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 190 by Rudolf Steiner, 12 lectures entitled Past and Future Impulses in Societal Events, translated by Paul King. This is Lecture 4, given in Dornach, on the 28th of March, 1919. To begin with, I will have certain things to say that will not seem to have much to do with what we have been discussing here, with our discussion, namely of the social question. But it will become apparent tomorrow how they are indeed connected. I concluded last time by showing the reason why children born in recent years, so born since 1912-1913, bring with them from their spiritual life before birth a certain aversion, we could say, to having to acclimatize themselves to what they find here on earth like a cultural heritage from their direct and indirect ancestors of the last centuries. I told you that among the concrete experiences one can have of the spiritual world, there is one of a sort of meeting taking place in the spiritual world between the souls of those who have recently died, who are ascending, in other words, through the portal of death, back into the spiritual world, and those souls who are about to step out once more onto the earthly arena. The kind of connection people had with the spiritual world before they died continues to reverberate very strongly after they have gone through the portal of death. This has great significance, particularly for our times. In our times, there are very few atavistic feelings still in people who can connect them with the spiritual world. They therefore only receive impulses they can then carry up into the spiritual world through the portal of death, if they have occupied themselves consciously with the spiritual world through ideas. There is indeed a great difference today between the deceased who have received ideas from whatever source about the spiritual world, ideas that are in a real thought form, and individuals who lived only in the notions of our materialistic culture. There is a great difference between these souls in the life after death and the souls that are about to come into incarnation once more on the earth have a strong sense of it. Now, you know that in the course of recent times, right into the twentieth century, materialistic tendencies, materialistic thinking and sensibilities have grown increasingly more intense. So the people who ascend through the portal of death into the spiritual world have few impulses which, if I may put it like this, can awaken sympathetic expectations for their sojourn on the earth in those who are wishing to descend to earth. This reached a culmination in the second decade of the twentieth century, and thus the children who were born in the second decade of the twentieth century came to the earth with a strong antipathy toward what existed as conventional culture, conventional education. This stream of impulses that entered with these recently born children has contributed powerfully 
to evoke a tendency on earth to clear away, to sweep away this old culture, this capitalist and technological culture. And someone who is in a position to investigate, in the right way, the connection between the physical and the superphysical world, will not misunderstand when it is said that what is living in our youngest fellow citizens on earth as a desire for a spiritual culture has played an essential part in what has happened on the earth in recent years. You see, my dear friends, that this, if I may say so, is in a certain sense the brighter aspect of the sad and terrible events of recent years. It is a brighter aspect because it shows that the terrible things that have been perpetrated, if we can put it like that, because of the moribund nature of the materialistic age, are willed by heaven and are sent down as a message through the subconscious of recently born children. This is the soul expression that is completely different in very young children from what it was in those born in the 19th or the beginning of the 20th century. And it will be necessary for humanity to organize itself according to subtle observations of this nature. Today, humanity is proud of its practicality. But just where this practicality ought to operate in a real observation of life, everything is bypassed by sight, bypassed in speech, bypassed in thought. The melancholic expression that has appeared over the last five to six years in numerous very young children in the child's countenance is little noticed by people today. If they noticed it, they would draw from it, just from this alone, the impulse and realization that a powerful social movement has to gain ground. So, we need to acquire a sense for the look, for the physiognomy that people have in the earliest years of their earthly existence. But for this to happen, people need, of course, to develop this sense. Now, no matter how grotesque it may still seem to many people, much can be done to develop this sense by engaging with what is really trying to be achieved by eurythmy. Not by merely pursuing sensation, however, but by engaging with our whole soul. You will see in a moment why this is. Someone who is in a position today to communicate through occult experience with the dead, of course one communicates with the dead through thoughts, soon notices that very many of the thoughts by which one wishes to communicate with the dead are not understood by them. Many of the thoughts of people here on earth, of the thoughts that people have grown accustomed to, sound for the dead. Naturally, you need to take this in the right way. I am talking about thought communication with the dead, like an unintelligible foreign language. And if we look closer at this situation, we find that verbs, prepositions, and particularly interjections are relatively easily understood by the dead, but nouns hardly at all. Nouns represent a kind of gap in the deceased's understanding of language. The dead never understand if we try to speak to them with a lot of nouns. And we notice that if we change a noun into a verb, the dead then begin to understand. If you say, for example, to a deceased one, quote, the germ, as in a seed, of something, close quote, the word germ, in German keim, in most cases remains unintelligible. It is as though they don't hear it at all. If you say something, quote, 
is germinating, close quote, German es keimt. If you change germ into a verb, something is germinating, then they begin to understand. Why is this? We come to realize that this is not due at all to the dead, but due to ourselves. It is due to the person who is speaking with the dead, and the reason is that, at least for all Central and Western European languages, it becomes more the case the farther west you go, people today, and ever since the middle of the 15th century, have lost a vivid feeling for the pictorial quality the noun expresses. When a person today utters a noun, it is something nebulous, having resonance only in our understanding. Only the smallest minority of people still think something with any reality at all when they utter a noun. When you have to change a noun into a verb, you are inwardly forced to think a bit more concretely. When someone says, in quotes, the germ, you will not find in most cases, especially when they are talking abstractly, that they have a concrete image in their mind of a plant seed germ, say of a germinating bean. Their image is something nebulous, just something in principle. When you say something is germinating, or that which germinates, you are at least forced, by using the verb form, to think of an emerging, in other words, of something that is moving. This means that you go from the abstract into the concrete. And because you yourself have moved from the abstract to the concrete, the deceased one begins to understand you. But because, for reasons I have often discussed here, the living connection between people alive on earth and the discarnate souls who have passed through the portal of death must become closer and closer, because the impulses working in from the dead must take effect on earth more and more. Because of this, people will be obliged to gradually take into their language, into their speech, and therefore also into their thinking, something that leads from the abstract to the concrete. This must become a real aspiration in people, to think pictorially, in imaginative pictures when they speak. Now I ask you, how many people think concretely when, let's say, for example, they read about a court case where there were judges who have judged, pronounced sentence, and exercised their legal function? Where in the whole world do people think concretely when someone utters the noun law? Quotes. Do you actually picture this most shadowy of abstractions that is in people's heads when the law, the sphere of rights, German das Recht, is spoken about? When right, in quotes, righteousness, in quotes, is expressed in speech? So what, from a purely linguistic perspective, is law? We have said a lot about the fact that the state should be primarily a legislative state. So what is law purely in itself? For most people it is a very shadowy idea, an idea that moves in the very driest of abstractions. So how can you get a concrete picture of law? Let's pursue this by taking a specific case. You know that we call certain people gauche or clumsy, German linkish, what are gauche people? You see, when we try to do something with our left hand and we don't happen to be left-handed, we usually do it clumsily. 
we don't have the skill for it. If someone behaves generally in life, the way we behave when we do something with our left hand, they are gauche. Behind the word linkish, there is the very concrete idea that, quote, he does everything the way I do it with my left hand, close quote. Not a dry abstraction, but something very concrete. Quote, he does things the way I do them when I use my left hand, close quote. Seen concretely, a contrast in feeling arises here between what is left-related and what is right-related, what we do with our right hand and what we do with our left. And what is right-related becomes the noun das Recht, law or the law, the sphere of legal rights. Law or legal rights was originally simply what was done with as much skill for reality as that which we do with our right hand and not with our left. Now, we have introduced some concreteness into the matter. Now, just imagine, you can imagine this just with a clock, but there are numerous other instances where we could do something similar. That if you have to put a clock right, as a rule you would not turn the hands with your left hand, but with your right, you set the clock right. This turning from left to right that we do with our right hand is a concrete putting right, a, in quotes, rightening. We even say in German, zurechtrichten, righten it to rights. Here you have the concrete mental picture of moving in a circle from left to right, of putting right. This is what rightening, richten, is. Someone who strays off to the left where they ought not to go is put right by a judge. In German, judge is Richter, that is a rightener, one who puts you right. Through things like this we reach a point where we associate words with concrete thought images. You see, even into the 15th century, words were still connected with pictorial thoughts of this kind by everyone. This pictorial thinking was then discarded. We need to train ourselves back into it, for the deceased only understand what still reverberates in language in a pictorial way. Everything which, as is mostly the case in modern language, is no longer pictorial, is not formulated with a rich pictorial quality so that the recipient receives a pictorial thought, is unintelligible to the dead. If you consider the matter further, you will see that whenever we convert something and give it a pictorial quality, its actual nounal nature is lost. It is all transformed into a verb quality, or at least into something where one is obliged to produce pictorial thoughts. If one develops a style today that is consistently based on pictorial thoughts, the response one gets as a rule is that people don't understand it that it is difficult to comprehend. But anyone who takes our times seriously will strive consciously for a style that can be thought through and through in images. Even in my pamphlet on the social question, where one is so pressed toward abstractions because the present time fosters, almost exclusively, the use of abstractions when the social question is under discussion, even here I have tried as far as possible to develop a style in which the content can be turned into images. The facility for speaking in abstractions 
is pushed to its greatest extreme precisely in the present rhetoric on the social question. And people have gradually got used to accepting the words, like verbal coins, as it were, with which they no longer think anything of a concrete pictorial nature at all. Just read a modern pamphlet or book on social questions. You will only manage it if you have spent years familiarizing yourself with what is meant there, for the whole meaning of such speeches is based on the conventional use of the words. Who today, when speaking about owners, Besitzenden, in German literally possessors, feels that this word has a connection with being possessed, possessen, and yet the genius of the language which, as I have often said, is far, far more significant than anything the single human individual can think or say, has created innumerable relationships that only need to be discovered by the individual in order to enter once more into a certain spiritual life. And precisely when we try to find the verb behind each noun, and by way of exercise do not always talk about light and sound, but talk about that which shines and that which sounds, and then find ourselves compelled to concentrate more and more on what has real existential substance as opposed to what does not, then we are on a track that can be helpful in this respect. And even an adjective is far better than a noun. It is much more concrete to say, quote, people who are skillful, close quote, than simply to talk about the skilled. But, in quote, skillful person is already far more concrete than when the terrible ghost skill is uttered. For that is how the deceased experience it, as a terrible ghost. When you say, in quotes, the how, or in quotes, the what, Goethe formulated the beautiful saying, quote, consider the what, but consider more the how, close quote, then this is a living language for the dead, because you yourself, in using such words as what and how as nouns, are obliged to feel concretely. If you say today, quote, I stand on principle to a certain viewpoint, close quote, then you have spoken two ghosts for the dead. Firstly, principle, for hardly anyone today thinks anything concrete with the word principle, and secondly, viewpoint. This ghost, viewpoint, is so corrupted in our language and in all Western European languages that when someone articulates it, they almost always leave out the most important aspect. Even typesetters often correct one. If I write in a manuscript, quote, wenn man von einem Standpunkt aus etwas sieht, close quote, in English, when one sees something from a point of view, the typesetter corrects it by deleting aus, and one has to put it back again in the proofs, for people have become accustomed to saying the nonsensical, quote, wenn man von einem Standpunkt etwas sieht, in English, when one sees something of a point of view, bracket, the problem arises in German because von can mean both from and of. By writing von aus, Steiner makes it clear that from is meant. Close bracket. Speaking concretely, one can only say, quote, when one sees something from a point of view, close quote, this brings concreteness into it. But if one sees something of a viewpoint, the only possibility for someone who speaks concretely 
is to picture that one is seeing something of the actual point of view, a little bit of the point. Well, a little bit of a point is not that easy to imagine, is it? These things are exceptionally important and significant because they point to the intimate nature of the connections between the sensory and the spiritual world. Such things give us far more of an idea of the relationship between the sensory and the supersensory than most of what is articulated about them today in abstract words. Just look through the spiritual scientific literature I have endeavored to write and examine the method used. This is an examination that probably only the tiniest fraction of people have undertaken up to now, because the method used is such that one thing is actually clarified by another, that things always refer to one another. And there is no other way to awaken a real spiritual understanding than by one thing always pointing to something else. Take the word spirit. People who want to go beyond materialism believe they have to say spirit, spirit, spirit. Let's take the German word Geist, spirit. In Latin, it has a still more concrete character, spiritus, also meaning alcohol in German. But what we understand by Geist is not something that would lead most people very strongly to the spirit. And when you think it over, the matter becomes very abstract, because after all, you can't picture alcoholic spirits, can you? Yet that is the concrete idea underlying it. But what is Geist, spirit? I have often complained about this, but most people, when they think of the spirit, only imagine a very, very rarefied substance, like an extremely thin mist. And if they want to speak about the spirit, they talk about, in quotes, vibrations. I often used to hear people saying, not in theosophical meetings, but at theosophical teas, that the vibrations were so good. I'm not sure how they meant this, but at any rate it is a very material process that one fantasizes into the space. The word geist, spirit, gischt, spray, foam, geist, dialect form of geist, geshti, dialect form of gischt, is something like steam that sprays out of an opening. That would be the concrete mental image. But in our present time, in the fifth post-Atlantean cultural epoch, we cannot come to any kind of concrete thought image of the spirit in this way. It is simply impossible. For you either stick to some kind of shadowy abstraction that you associate with the word spirit, or you are forced to think of spirits, of alcoholic spirit, and the idea there of an inspired person would give you a very curious concrete image. Or you think of spray, gischt, spirit, geischt, of something that sprays out when a valve is opened that would lead you to what is concrete. Now, in the method adopted here for the anthroposophical pursuit of spiritual science, we try through the reciprocal nature of the ideas introduced to gradually make these more concrete. Consider that on the one hand it is said that the human being consists of physical body, etheric body, astral body, sentient soul, intellectual soul, consciousness soul, and then the spirit emerges, spirit life, life spirit, and spirit man. It is quite consciously only touched on, since the majority of those who hear these things cannot yet have a concrete mental image of them. 
Very soon after this, however, people hear the following. Look at the course of a human life. From birth to the seventh year, to the change of teeth, the physical body is predominantly active. Then up to the fourteenth year, the etheric body, then the sentient body, then from the twenty-first to the twenty-eighth year, the sentient soul, then in the thirties, the intellectual or mind soul, and so on. This suggests to people the following. Observe externally the changes that occur in the concrete human being who develops over the course of life. When you see a person at the beginning of their twenties and with their particular characteristics, let these attributes be symptomatic for you of what you need to imagine when the term sentient soul is used. When you see a child that characteristically wants to do everything the grown-ups do, to live through the sheath of the body, then from the way the child behaves you get an idea of what is understood by, in quotes, physical body. And when you see an old person with gray hair and lined face, whose substance is noticeably withering, and you observe them in their movements and just in the way they are, then you no longer see, as was the case with the child, that something living in them comes to expression predominantly through the bodily sheath. But what you see at work in an old person is what is already beginning to release itself from the physical body. Observe an old man. Through his gestures and in the nature of his behavior, you will gradually rise up to an idea of the spirit. If you compare an old person with a child and compare the gestures of the old person with the child's imitative gestures, a feeling awakens in your soul for the difference between spirit and matter. Think how the pictorial quality, imaginative mental images, are helped by this. This indicates to us that we need to picture the course of a person's life concretely and sense something in this life. Then our otherwise abstract words become filled with concrete content. And we also try to show in every way possible how humanity as such has become ever younger and younger, that we are now twenty-seven years old, meaning that our culture is as it is, because as humanity we are twenty-seven. If you compare this with what you can know about earlier cultural periods and what you, you can anticipate in future cultural periods, this supports a pictorial thinking in you. Forming thoughts by way of comparisons and relationships is something by which you advance from the abstract to the concrete and gradually reach a point where you no longer accept abstractions but change them into something concrete. You listen to the genius of the language. The schools today ought really to come to the aid of what is a great cultural task. Exercises should be done in schools for making thinking concrete so that when they speak, people begin to feel themselves in their speaking, to feel themselves in the world, in their speaking. Let's say, for example, I write something on the board. Someone says, I can't grasp that. Think of the shadowy abstractions you sometimes have in your mind when you say, I can't grasp it. They would become concrete if you imagined that you wanted to physically grasp it, to reach out and take hold of it, but you don't grasp it, you stay back, you don't reach it. But you would have to imagine this with your hands. Try this with the most important words. What would you be doing? 
in your mind you would actually be doing eurythmy. When you speak concretely, in your mind you are doing eurythmy. There would be nothing for it but to do eurythmy in your mind. And someone who is engaged in these things in a living way experiences modern people as, pardon me for saying so, awful lazybones, as people who always walk around with their hands in their pockets and don't want to move, and then speak. Experienced spiritually, when people think abstractly, they clamp their feet together, thrust their hands into their pockets, and so force everything into themselves as much as possible. That's how people talk today. Leaving out concreteness in one's thoughts means being slouchy, but this is how most people are nowadays. People need to become inwardly mobile once more. This means they need to feel with the world. Even those who do do this sometimes only do it unconsciously. We know people who touch their nose when they think deeply about something. The fact that this is a fully concrete, eurythmic gesture for, quote, wanting to feel strong in oneself, close quote, in order to make a decision, is something people are completely unaware of. People don't even wonder today why they have a right and a left hand or why two eyes. And the most fantastical things are to be found in academic books about vision with two eyes that actually clarifies nothing. If we did not have two hands, enabling us to take hold of our left hand with our right, we could not have a proper sense of our ego, in parentheses, ich vorstellung. Our sense of ego only becomes gradually possible in the right way, because from right to left we take hold of like with like. And just as we can cross our left hand over our right, just as in doing so we have a sense of ourselves, and are amazed at our sensation, at what we sense, so we also cross our axes of vision. It is just that this crossing is not as visible as it is with our hands. Thus we have two eyes so that we can cross them, and for the same reason we have two hands and arms. This is what we need to bear in mind if we want to look at the more intimate imperatives of human development from the present into the future the imperative of adopting into our language what is lacking in language today. And because of this lack, the human being closes himself off from the whole world in which he finds himself between death and a new birth. This is why, when we want to establish a connection with one who has died, we are always urged not to speak to them simply in verbal concepts, for that doesn't lead very far but to think of any concrete situation. This is how you stood next to them. You heard their voice. This brought you together with them in feeling. Thinking of the situation absolutely concretely and everything that happened, this is what connects us with one who has died. For people today use language in a way that separates them from the world of the dead. The genius of language has died to a large extent, and has to be brought back to life. Many of the linguistic combinations and the like that people are currently used to will probably have to be dropped. A very, very great deal depends on this, my dear friends. For we will only come to imaginative, mental picturing 
once again, which I have already mentioned here as being imperative for our future development, by really trying to listen and learn from the genius of the language, the concrete aspect underlying words. Only then will we gradually get rid of the complicated abstraction and something else will emerge. People today feel an enormous satisfaction when they can think in abstractions, when they get away from reality, which for them is sensory reality. But by doing so, they actually just end up in thought holes. At least for the dead, they are thought holes. And when people today talk about spirit, 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 that is also just so many thought holes, because people don't picture anything concrete. Most thoughts today are abstractions. The further eastward one goes, so the Europeans say, the more pictorial language becomes. This is precisely the reason why language is more closely related to spirit the further one goes to the east, because it is more pictorial. Speaking in abstractions ought not take us away from a thinking that is concrete and sensory, but rather should simply illuminate this thinking. But just think, have many of you thought of the concrete aspect of the sentence I have just spoken? Quote, real sensory thinking should be illuminated by abstractions? Close quote. As a concrete sensory thought, you have to imagine this as dark, a darkness. This darkness is illuminated by abstractions. We can think of rays of light coming into a dark space that is blue-black, while what is shining in is yellowish. In saying, quote, abstractions illuminate our concrete sensory thoughts, close quote, I have in my mind a dark space into which bright rays of light are shining. See illustration. How many people today really have a picture like this in their mind? They say the word illuminate without having a concrete image any more in what we call the mind's eye, E-Y-E. But what matters is not only that we imagine concrete and sensory things differently when we start using abstractions, but that we have a feeling for this different way of mental picturing. We can acquire this feeling by watching Eurythmy, for what is in words comes to expression there through a different medium, one less hackneyed, through the medium of gesture. And people can find their way back to pictorial thinking. Few people are aware that reaching out one's hand is a real eurythmic E, because they don't realize that when they articulate E, and this E sound is associated with a concrete thought, they stretch out something in their etheric body. But when they observe the same movement in eurythmy, they gradually come to realize that when they articulate the sound E, they stretch out something in their etheric body. This is not mentioned here on a whim, but is something truly connected with our cultural development exceptionally strongly. It is important to understand this. We are now in the fifth post-Atlantean epoch. Ahead of us we have the sixth and seventh and then a great juncture in human evolution. During this fifth post-Atlantean era, languages have to go back to being concrete, to pictorial thinking. Only in this way can we really fulfill the task of this fifth post-Atlantean age. Now, the more spiritual life is under the yoke of the state, 
the less will languages return to an image-rich thinking. The more schools and creative activities have been nationalized in the last centuries, the more abstract the whole of life has become. Only a life of thought established on its own footing will be able to bring about the necessary pictorializing of people's mental nature. And this has to be brought about. Within this endeavor, things will arise during the course of the fifth post-Atlantean epoch that will interfere in these spiritual aspirations in a very disturbing way. In this situation during the fifth post-Atlantean epoch, only those individuals will have the right feeling about themselves who are able to think the following. You are standing in the world. You must be conscious that on the one side you are constantly drawing near to Luciferic being. On the other side, you are constantly drawing near to Aramonic being. Steiner draws on the board. This living feeling of being placed as a human being within this trinity must permeate people more and more during the fifth post-Atlantean period. In this way, they will make it through the great dangers of the fifth post-Atlantean period. Individuals of the most varied human character will emerge during this fifth post-Atlantean epoch. There will be idealists. There will be materialists. But the idealists will constantly face the danger of wandering with their thoughts into Luciferic regions, of becoming zealous dreamers, fantasists, fanatics, Lenins, Trotskys, without solid ground under their feet. In their will, they can easily become aramonic, despotic, tyrannical. What actually is the difference between a Tsar and a Lenin? Materialists will easily become aramonic in their thinking, sober, philistine, dry, bourgeois. And in their will, materialists can become luciferic, bestial, carnal, tense, sensitive, hysterical. I'll write it up on the board. Idealists. Ideas can easily become luciferic, dreamers, fantasists, fanatics. Will can easily become aramonic, despotic, tyrannical. Materialists. Ideas can easily become aramonic, prosaic, philistine, dry, bourgeois. Will can easily become luciferic, bestial, carnal, nervy, sensitive, hysterical. So you see that in the fifth post-Atlantean age, idealists and materialists are exposed to the same dangers, but from different sides. The idealists are exposed to the luciferic element on their thinking side and to the aramonic element on their will side. The materialists to the aramonic element on their thinking side and the luciferic from the side of their will. A great variety of gradations will emerge in the different character types. This is where the difficulty lies for humanity's progress, because all this will tend to lead humanity astray. For a person will never advance properly by one-sidedly being an idealist or a materialist, but only by having the goodwill to penetrate with understanding into material reality on the one side and, equally, on the other, to allow themselves to be enlightened in the right way by the Spirit. One should not become one-sided, even with regard to the most concrete perceptions of life, in fact, especially not there. Someone who is only fond of children faces the danger of having very strong aramonic influences working on them. 
someone who is fond only of old people, faces the danger of having very strong luciferic influences working on them. In order to contribute to a productive development of civilization toward the future, people will need a many-sided range of interests. This will be predominantly the task of the fifth post-Atlantean epoch. But this epoch and the ones that follow it will overlap considerably. What will come to expression in the sixth epoch has already to be prepared for in the fifth, and so also with what will come to expression in the seventh. Things can't be as separate in the future as they were in the past. And what will be necessary for the sixth epoch is that people manage to shackle the Aramonic principle, which means really getting to grips with reality. How will people get to grips with reality? What is necessary here, above all, is that the legal sphere, from which the life of thought and the economic sphere have been separated out, that this legal sphere, which is what lives democratically between one person and another, must become as conscious now as it was unconscious during the Egyptian and Chaldean eras. People must learn to be more sharply aware of the significant processes in everything that happens in the world between one person and another. Ideas must come to life such as those in my last mystery drama, in the Egyptian scene where Capacius articulates that what happens there in a small space has significance for events in the whole world. And when people know once more that one cannot lie to someone without powerful things rampaging in the spiritual world, then something will be fulfilled that must be increasingly fulfilled in the sixth post-Atlantean epoch. And when we come in turn to the possibility of a wisdom-filled paganism alongside Christianity, then something will have been realized that is necessary for the seventh post-Atlantean epoch, but also most especially for now. People have lost their relationship to nature. Nature no longer speaks to people in gestures. How many people today can still have any idea what it means when one says, quote, In summer the earth sleeps. In winter the earth is awake. Close quote. It is an abstraction for them, but it is not an abstraction. A relationship must be regained with nature such that people feel themselves to be alike with all nature. These are things that are essential for the more intimate aspects of soul life. How they are connected with what we can call the social impulse will be the subject of our further discussion tomorrow, the end of Lecture 4.